Chapter Eight of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Eight. Guy de Maupassant. Section One. The first artists in any line are doubtless not those whose general ideas about their art are most often on their lips, those who most abound in precept apology and formula and can best tell us the reasons and the philosophy of things we know the first usually by their energetic practice the constancy with which they apply their principles and the serenity with which they leave us to hunt for their secret in the illustration the concrete example none the less it often happens that a valid artist utters his mystery flashes upon us for a moment the light by which he works shows us the rule by which he holds it just that he should be measured this accident is happiest i think when it is soonest over the shortest explanations of the products of genius are the best and there is many a creator of living figures whose friends however full of faith in his inspiration will do well to pray for him when he sallies forth into the dim wilderness of theory the doctrine is apt to be so much less inspired than the work the work is often so much more intelligent than the doctrine Monsieur Guy de Maupassant has lately traversed with a firm and rapid step a literary crisis of this kind. He has clambered safely up the bank at the further end of the morass. If he has relieved himself in the preface to Pierre et Jean, the last published of his tales, he has also rendered a service to his friends he has not only come home in a recognizable plight escaping gross disaster with a success which even his extreme good sense was far from making in advance a matter of course but he has expressed in intelligible terms that by itself is a ground of felicitation his most general idea his own sense of his direction he has arranged as it were the light in which he wishes to sit if it is a question of attempting under however many disadvantages a sketch of him the critic's business therefore is simplified there will be no difficulty in placing him for he himself has chosen the spot he has made the chalk mark on the floor I may as well say at once that, in dissertation, Monsieur de Maupassant does not write with his best pen. The philosopher in his composition is perceptibly inferior to the story-teller. I would rather have written half a page of Boule de Suif than the whole of the introduction to Flaubert's letters to Madame Sand and his little disquisition on the novel in general attached to that particular example of it which he has just put forth is considerably less to the point than the masterpiece which it ushers in in short as a commentator m de maupassant is slightly common while as an artist he is wonderfully rare of course we must, in judging a writer, take one thing with another, and if I could make up my mind that Monsieur de Maupassant is weak in theory, it would almost make me like him better, render him more approachable, 
give him the touch of softness that he lacks, and show us a human flaw. The most general quality of the author of La Maison Tellier and Bellamy, the impression that remains last after the others have been accounted for, is an essential hardness, hardness of form, hardness of nature, and it would put us more at ease to find that if the fact with him, the fact of execution, is so extraordinarily definite and adequate, his explanations after it were a little vague and sentimental but i am not sure that he must even be held foolish to have noticed the race of critics he is at any rate so much less foolish than several of that fraternity he has said his say concisely and as if he were saying it once for all in fine, his readers must be grateful to him for such a passage as that, in which he remarks that, whereas the public at large very legitimately says to a writer, console me, amuse me, terrify me, make me cry, make me dream, or make me think, what the sincere critic says is, make me something fine in the form that shall suit you best according to your temperament. This seems to me to put into a nutshell the whole question of the different classes of fiction, concerning which there has recently been so much discourse. There are simply as many different kinds as there are persons practicing the art. For if a picture, a tale, or a novel be a direct impression of life, and that surely constitutes its interest and value, the impression will vary according to the plate that takes it the particular structure and mixture of the recipient i am not sure that i know what m de maupassant means when he says the critic shall appreciate the result only according to the nature of the effort he has no right to concern himself with tendencies the second clause of that observation strikes me as rather in the air, thanks to the vagueness of the last word. But our author adds to the definiteness of his contention when he goes on to say that any form of the novel is simply a vision of the world from the standpoint of a person constituted after a certain fashion and that it is therefore absurd to say that there is for the novelist's use only one reality of things this seems to me commendable not as a flight of metaphysics hovering over bottomless gulfs of controversy but on the contrary as a just indication of the vanity of certain dogmatisms the particular way we see the world is our particular illusion about it, says M. de Maupassant, and this illusion fits itself to our organs and senses. Our receptive vessel becomes the furniture of our little plot of the universal consciousness. Quote, how childish, moreover, to believe in reality, since we each carry our own in our thought and in our organs, our eyes, our ears, our sense of smell, of taste, differing from one person to another, create as many truths as there are men upon earth and our minds, taking instruction from these organs so diversely impressed, understand, 
analyze, judge, as if each of us belonged to a different race. Each one of us, therefore, forms for himself an illusion of the world, which is the illusion poetic, or sentimental, or joyous, or melancholy, or unclean, or dismal, according to his nature. And the writer has no other mission than to reproduce faithfully this illusion, with all the contrivances of art that he has learned, and has at his command, the illusion of beauty, which is a human convention, the illusion of ugliness, which is a changing opinion, the illusion of truth, which is never immutable, the illusion of the ignoble, which attracts so many. The great artists are those who make humanity accept their particular illusion. Let us, therefore, not get angry with any one theory, since every theory is the generalized expression of a temperament asking itself questions. Unquote. What is interesting in this is not that M. de Maupassant happens to hold that we have no universal measure of the truth, but that it is the last word on a question of art from a writer who is rich in experience and has had success in a very rare degree. It is of secondary importance that our impression should be called or not called an illusion. What is excellent is that our author has stated more neatly than we have lately seen it done, that the value of the artist resides in the clearness with which he gives forth that impression. His particular organism constitutes a case, and the critic is intelligent in proportion as he apprehends and enters into that case to quarrel with it because it is not another which it could not possibly have been without a wholly different outfit appears to m de maupassant a deplorable waste of time if this appeal to our disinterestedness may strike some readers as chilling through their inability to conceive of any other form than the one they like a limitation excellent for a reader but poor for a judge the occasion happens to be none of the best for saying so for m de maupassant himself precisely presents all the symptoms of a case in the most striking way and shows us how far the consideration of them may take us embracing such an opportunity as this and giving ourselves to it freely seems to me indeed to be a course more fruitful in valid conclusions as well as in entertainment by the way than the more common method of establishing one's own premises to make clear to ourselves those of the author of Pierre et Jean, those to which he is committed by the very nature of his mind, is an attempt that will both stimulate and repay curiosity. There is no way of looking at his work less dry, less academic, for as we proceed from one of his peculiarities to another, the whole horizon widens, yet without our leaving firm ground, and we see ourselves landed step by step in the most general questions, those explanations of things which reside in the race, in the society. Of course there are cases and cases, and it is the salient ones that the disinterested critic is delighted to meet.
What makes Monsieur de Maupassant salient is two facts, the first of which is that his gifts are remarkably strong and definite, and the second that he writes directly from them, as it were, holds the fullest, the most uninterrupted, I scarcely know what to call it, the boldest communication with them. A case is poor when the cluster of the artist's sensibilities is small, or they themselves are wanting in keenness, or else when the personage fails to admit them, either through ignorance or diffidence or stupidity or the error of a false ideal to what may be called a legitimate share in his attempt. It is, I think, among English and American writers that this latter accident is most liable to occur, more than the French we are apt to be misled by some convention or other as to the sort of feeler we ought to put forth, forgetting that the best one will be the one that nature happens to have given us. We have, doubtless, often enough the courage of our opinions, when it befalls that we have opinions, but we have not so constantly that of our perceptions. There is a whole side of our perceptive apparatus that we in fact neglect, and there are probably many among us who would erect this tendency into a duty. Monsieur de Maupassant neglects nothing that he possesses. He cultivates his garden with admirable energy. And if there is a flower you miss from the rich parterre, you may be sure that it could not possibly have been raised, his mind not containing the soil for it. He is plainly of the opinion that the first duty of the artist, and the thing that makes him most useful to his fellow men, is to master his instrument, whatever it may happen to be. His own is that of the senses, and it is through them alone, or almost alone, that life appeals to him. It is almost alone by their help that he describes it, that he produces brilliant works. They render him this great assistance because they are evidently, in his constitution, extraordinarily alive. There is scarcely a page in all his twenty volumes that does not testify to their vivacity. Nothing could be further from his thought than to disavow them and to minimize their importance. He accepts them frankly, gratefully, works them, rejoices in them. If he were told that there are many English writers who would be sorry to go with him in this, he would, I imagine, staring, say that that is about what was to have been expected of the Anglo-Saxon race, or even that many of them probably could not go with him if they would. Then he would ask how our authors can be so foolish as to sacrifice such a moyenne, how they can afford to, and exclaim, they must be pretty works, those they produce, and give a fine, true, complete account of life, with such omissions, such lacunae. Monsieur de Maupassant's productions teach us, for instance, that his sense of smell is exceptionally acute, as acute as that of those animals of the field and forest whose subsistence and security depend upon it. 
it might be thought that he would as a student of the human race have found an abnormal development of this faculty embarrassing scarcely knowing what to do with it where to place it but such an apprehension betrays an imperfect conception of his directness and resolution as well as of his constant economy of means nothing whatever prevents him from representing the relations of men and women as largely governed by the scent of the parties human life in his pages would this not be the most general description he would give of it appears for the most part as a sort of concert of odors and his people are perpetually engaged or he is engaged on their behalf in sniffing up and distinguishing them in some pleasant or painful exercise of the nostril if everything in life speaks to the nostril why on earth shouldn't we say so i suppose him to inquire and what a proof of the empire of poor conventions and hypocrisies chez vous autres that you should pretend to describe and characterize and yet take no note or so little that it comes to the same thing of that essential sign not less powerful is his visual sense the quick direct discrimination of his eye which explains the singularly vivid concision of his descriptions these are never prolonged nor analytic have nothing of enumeration of the quality of the observer who counts the items to be sure he has made up the sum his eye selects unerringly unscrupulously almost impudently catches the particular thing in which the character of the object or the scene resides and by expressing it with the artful brevity of a master leaves a convincing original picture if he is inveterately synthetic he is never more so than in the way he brings this hard short intelligent gaze to bear his vision of the world is for the most part a vision of ugliness and even when it is not there is in his easy power to generalize a certain absence of love a sort of bird's-eye view contempt he has none of the superstitions of observation none of our english indulgences our tender and often imaginative superficialities if he glances into a railway carriage bearing its freight into the parisian suburbs of a summer sunday a dozen dreary lives map themselves out in a flash Quote, there were stout ladies in farcical clothes those middle-class goodwives of the banlieue who replace the distinction they don't possess by an irrelevant dignity gentlemen weary of the office with sallow faces and twisted bodies and one of their shoulders a little forced up by perpetual bending at work over a table their anxious joyless faces spoke moreover of domestic worries incessant needs for money old hopes finally shattered for they all belonged to the army of poor threadbare devils who vegetate frugally in a mean little plaster house with a flower-bed for a garden Unquote. 
even in a brighter picture such as the admirable vignette of the drive of madame tellier and her companions the whole thing is an impression as painters say nowadays in which the figures are cheap the six women at the station clamber into a country cart and go jolting through the Norman landscape to the village. Quote, but presently the jerky trot of the nag shook the vehicle so terribly that the chairs began to dance, tossing up the travellers to right, to left, with movements like puppets, scared grimaces, cries of dismay suddenly interrupted by a more violent bump. They clutch the sides of the trap, their bonnets turned over on to their backs, or upon the nose or the shoulder, and the white horse continued to go, thrusting out his head and straightening the little tail, hairless like that of a rat, with which from time to time he whisked his buttocks. Joseph Rivet, with one foot stretched upon the shaft, the other leg bent under him, and his elbows very high, held the reins, and emitted from his throat every moment a kind of cluck, which caused the animal to prick up his ears and quicken his pace. On either side of the road the green country stretched away. The colza, in flower, produced in spots a great carpet of undulating yellow, from which there rose a strong, wholesome smell, a smell penetrating and pleasant, carried very far by the breeze. In the tall rye the corn-flowers held up their little azure heads, which the women wished to pluck, but Monsieur Rivet refused to stop. Then, in some place, a whole field looked as if it were sprinkled with blood, it was so crowded with poppies and in the midst of the great level, taking colour in this fashion from the flowers of the soil, the trap passed on with the jog of the white horse, seeming itself to carry a nosegay of richer hues. It disappeared behind the big trees of a farm, to come out again where the foliage stopped, and parade afresh through the green and yellow crops, pricked with red or blue, its blazing cartload of women, which receded in the sunshine. Unquote. As regards the other sense, the sense par excellence, the sense which we scarcely mention in English fiction, and which I am not very sure I shall be allowed to mention in an English periodical, Monsieur de Maupassant speaks for that and of it with extraordinary distinctness and authority. To say that it occupies the first place in his picture is to say too little it covers in truth the whole canvas and his work is little else but a report of its innumerable manifestations these manifestations are not for him so many incidents of life they are life itself they represent the standing answer to any question that we may ask about it he describes them in detail, with a familiarity and a frankness which leave nothing to be added. I should say with singular truth, if I did not consider that in regard to this article he may be taxed with a certain exaggeration. Monsieur de Maupassant would doubtless affirm that where the empire of the sexual sense is concerned, no exaggeration is possible. 
Nevertheless, it may be said that whatever depths may be discovered by those who dig for them, the impression of the human spectacle for him who takes it as it comes has less analogy with that of the monkey's cage than this admirable writer's account of it. I speak of the human spectacle as we Anglo-Saxons see it, as we Anglo-Saxons pretend we see it, Monsieur de Maupassant would probably say. At any rate, I have perhaps touched upon this peculiarity sufficiently to explain my remark that his point of view is almost solely that of the senses. If he is a very interesting case, this makes him also an embarrassing one, embarrassing and mystifying for the moralist. I may as well admit that no writer of the day strikes me as equally so. To find M. de Maupassant a lion in the path, that may seem to some people a singular proof of want of courage, but I think the obstacle will not be made light of by those who have really taken the measure of the animal. We are accustomed to think, we of the English faith, that a cynic is a living advertisement of his errors, especially in proportion as he is a thorough-going one. And M. de Maupassant's cynicism, unrelieved as it is, will not be disposed of off-hand by a critic of a competent literary sense. Such a critic is not slow to perceive, to his no small confusion, that though, judging from usual premises, the author of Bellamy ought to be a warning, he somehow is not. His baseness, as it pervades him, ought to be written all over him. Yet somehow there are there certain aspects, and those commanding, as the house agents say, in which it is not in the least to be perceived. It is easy to exclaim that if he judges life only from the point of view of the senses, many are the noble and exquisite things that he must leave out. What he leaves out has no claim to get itself considered till after we have done justice to what he takes in. It is this positive side of M. de Maupassant that is most remarkable, the fact that his literary character is so complete and edifying. Auteur à peu près irréprochable dans un genre qui ne laisse pas as that excellent critic M. Jules Lemaitre says of him, he disturbs us by associating a conscience and a high standard with a temper long synonymous in our eyes with an absence of scruples. The situation would be simpler, certainly, if he were a bad writer, but nonetheless it is possible, I think, on the whole, to circumvent him, even without attempting to prove that, after all, he is one. The latter part of his introduction to Pierre et Jean is less felicitous than the beginning, but we learn from it, and this is interesting, that he regards the analytic fashion of telling a story which has lately begotten in his own country some such remarkable experiments, few votaries as it has attracted among ourselves, as very much less profitable than the simple epic manner which avoids with care all complicated explanations, all dissertations upon motives, and confines itself to making persons and events pass before our eyes. 
Monsieur de Maupassant adds that in his view, psychology should be hidden in a book as it is hidden in reality under the facts of existence. The novel conceived in this manner gains interest, movement, color, the bustle of life. When it is a question of an artistic process, we must always mistrust very sharp distinctions, for there is surely in every method a little of every other method. It is as difficult to describe an action without glancing at its motive, its moral history, as it is to describe a motive without glancing at its practical consequence. Our history and our fiction are what we do, but it surely is not more easy to determine where what we do begins than to determine where it ends, notoriously a hopeless task. Therefore it would take a very subtle sense to draw a hard and fast line on the borderland of explanation and illustration. If psychology be hidden in life, as, according to M. de Maupassant, it should be in a book, the question immediately comes up, from whom is it hidden? From some people, no doubt, but very much less from others, and all depends upon the observer, the nature of one's observation, and one's curiosity. For some people, motives, reasons, relations, explanations are a part of the very surface of the drama, with the footlights beating full upon them. For me, an act, an incident, an attitude may be a sharp, detached, isolated thing, of which I give a full account in saying that in such and such a way it came off. For you it may be hung about with implications, with relations, and conditions as necessary to help you to recognize it, as the clothes of your friends are to help you know them in the street. You feel that they would seem strange to you without petticoats and trousers. Monsieur de Maupassant would probably urge that the right thing is to know or to guess how events come to pass, but to say as little about it as possible. There are matters in regard to which he feels the importance of being explicit, but that is not one of them. The contention to which I allude strikes me as rather arbitrary, so difficult is it to put one's finger upon the reason why, for instance, there should be so little mystery about what happened to Christiane Andermatt in Mont Oriol, when she went to walk on the hills with Paul Bretigny, and so much, say, about the forces that formed her for that gentleman's convenience or those lying behind any other odd collapse that our reader may have related the rule misleads and the best rule certainly is the tact of the individual writer which will adapt itself to the material as the material comes to him the cause we plead is ever pretty sure to be the cause of our idiosyncrasies and if m de maupassant thinks meanly of explanations it is i suspect that they come to him in no great affluence his view of the conduct of man is so simple as scarcely to require them and indeed so far as they are needed he is virtually explanatory 
he deprecates reference to motives but there is one covering an immense ground in his horizon as i have already hinted to which he perpetually refers if the sexual impulse be not a moral antecedent it is none the less the wire that moves almost all m de maupassant's puppets and as he has not hidden it i cannot see that he has eliminated analysis or made a sacrifice to discretion his pages are studded with that particular analysis he is constantly peeping behind the curtain telling us what he discovers there the truth is that the admirable system of simplification which makes his tales so rapid and so concise especially his shorter ones for his novels in some degree i think suffer from it strikes us as not in the least a conscious intellectual effort a selective comparative process he tells us all he knows all he suspects and if these things take no account of the moral nature of man it is because he has no window looking in that direction and not because artistic scruples have compelled him to close it up the very compact mansion in which he dwells presents on that side a perfectly dead wall that is why if his axiom that you produce the effect of truth better by painting people from the outside than from the inside has a large utility his example is convincing in a much higher degree a writer is fortunate when his theory and his limitations so exactly correspond when his curiosities may be appeased with such precision and promptitude M. de Maupassant contends that the most that the analytic novelist can do is to put himself, his own peculiarities, into the costume of the figure analyzed. This may be true, but if it applies to one manner of representing people who are not ourselves, it applies also to any other manner it is the limitation the difficulty of the novelist to whatever clan or camp he may belong m de maupassant is remarkably objective and impersonal but he would go too far if he were to entertain the belief that he has kept himself out of his books they speak of him eloquently even if it only be to tell us how easy how easy given his talent of course he has found this impersonality let us hasten to add that in the case of describing a character it is doubtless more difficult to convey the impression of something that is not oneself the constant effort however delusive at bottom of the novelist than in the case of describing some object more immediately visible the operation is more delicate but that circumstance only increases the beauty of the problem on the question of style our author has some excellent remarks we may be grateful indeed for every one of them save an odd reflection about the way to become original if we happen not to be so 
The recipe for this transformation, it would appear, is to sit down in front of a blazing fire, or a tree in a plain, or any object we encounter in the regular way of business, and remain there until the tree, or the fire, or the object, whatever it be, become different for us from all other specimens of the same class. I doubt whether this system would always answer, for surely the resemblance is what we wish to discover quite as much as the difference, and the best way to preserve it is not to look for something opposed to it. Is not this indication of the road to take, to become, as a writer, original touched with the same fallacy as the recommendation about eschewing analysis? it is the only naivete i have encountered in m de maupassant's many volumes the best originality is the most unconscious and the best way to describe a tree is the way in which it has struck us ah but we don't always know how it has struck us the answer to that may be and it takes some time and ingenuity much fasting and prayer to find out if we do not know, it probably has not struck us very much, so little indeed that our inquiry had better be relegated to that closed chamber of an artist's meditations, that sacred back kitchen which no a priori rule can light up. The best thing the artist's adviser can do in such a case is to trust him and turn away, to let him fight the matter out with his conscience and be this said with a full appreciation of the degree in which m de maupassant's observation on the whole question of a writer's style at the point we have come to to-day bear the stamp of intelligence and experience his own style is of so excellent a tradition that the presumption is altogether in favour of what he may have to say he feels oppressively, discouragingly, as many another of his countrymen must have felt, for the French have worked their language as no other people have done, the penalty of coming at the end of three centuries of literature, the difficulty of dealing with an instrument of expression so worn by friction, of drawing new sounds from the old familiar pipe. Quote, when we read, so saturated with French writing as we are, that our whole body gives us the impression of being a paste made of words, do we ever find a line, a thought, which is not familiar to us, and of which we have not had at least a confused presentiment? Unquote. And he adds that the matter is simple enough for the writer who only seeks to amuse the public by means already known. He attempts little, and he produces, with confidence in the candor of his mediocrity, works which answer no question and leave no trace. It is he who wants to do more than this that has less and less an easy time of it. Everything seems to him to have been done, every effect produced, every combination already made. If he be a man of genius, his trouble is lightened, for mysterious ways are revealed to him, and new combinations spring up for him, even after novelty is dead. 
it is to the simple man of taste and talent who has only a conscience and a will that the situation may sometimes well appear desperate he judges himself as he goes and he can only go step by step over ground where every step is already a footprint if it be a miracle whenever there is a fresh tone, the miracle has been wrought for M. de Maupassant. Or is he simply a man of genius to whom shortcuts have been disclosed in the watches of the night? At any rate, he has had faith. Religion has come to his aid. I mean the religion of his mother tongue, which he has loved well enough to be patient for her sake. He has arrived at the peace which passeth understanding, at a kind of conservative piety. He has taken his stand on simplicity, on a studied sobriety, being persuaded that the deepest science lies in that direction rather than in the multiplication of new terms, and on this subject he delivers himself with superlative wisdom. Quote, there is no need of the queer, complicated, numerous, and Chinese vocabulary which is imposed on us to-day, under the name of artistic writing, to fix all the shades of thought. The right way is to distinguish with an extreme clearness all those modifications of the value of a word which comes from the place it occupies." let us have fewer nouns verbs and adjectives of an almost imperceptible sense and more different phrases variously constructed ingeniously cast full of the science of sound and rhythm let us have an excellent general form rather than be collectors of rare terms Unquote. Monsieur de Maupassant's practice does not fall below his exhortation, though I must confess that in the foregoing passage he makes use of the detestable expression stylist, which I have not reproduced. Nothing can exceed the masculine firmness, the quiet force of his own style, in which every phrase is a close sequence, every epithet a paying piece, and the ground is completely cleared of the vague, the ready-made, and the second-best. Less than anyone to-day does he beat the air, more than anyone does he hit out from the shoulder." End of chapter 8, section 1, Guy de Maupassant